You please join me in prayer. Almighty Father, as we gather on this Sabbath day, we know there's many who are hurting at this time, those who are dealing with issues, with losses. We pray that you'll give them the comfort they need, that you will encourage them. For we know that Yahshua says that this is just the beginning, but we can have our hope in you and we can trust in you for all things. We can know that you have the answer to our problems and that you will give us the guidance so that we can overcome, so that we can be ready one day when Yasha returns and raises his people from this earth into a glorified, glorious kingdom that will never end. Won't have the problems, the trials that we're facing, and that we can rejoice forever in eternity. We thank you for those who are sincerely seeking truth, and we pray that we can be a guide to them, and also for those who are looking to you, that you would call them as they would be faithful to you in all things. And this prayer and petition now we ask in Yahshua's name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. There was a song years ago with the lyrics, the times they are changing. So in in the spirit of that, be sure to change your clocks back one hour tonight. I always say, wake up, at, set your alarm for two, get up, turn it back, and then go back to sleep. Or you can just do it when you want to go to bed. It's a lot easier that way. If you were born in, well, before 1988, you may remember a show on TV called Truth or Consequences, a game show. It was so popular that in 1950, a town in New Mexico actually changed their name to Truth or Consequences New Mexico. Well, speaking of a more critical truth and its consequences, imagine if the word of Yahweh had that power that people would actually want to change to become part of what it's talking about in the word. That if Yahweh had that kind of appeal and influence today, like Nineveh, capital of Assyria, completely repented when Jonah told them what was going to happen. A town of 120,000 residents yielding to Yahweh. Pretty amazing. Hasn't happened much in the past. It's unusual, but it can happen. Churchgoers have been arguing for centuries about which biblical teachings are right, which ones lead to salvation. There's been all sorts of infighting over it, skirmishes, arguments, fistfights, when these arguments reach a boiling point. Why? Why should it be that way? Why should there be so many differences of, a t- of opinion, so many different teachings? The ultimate test is really, it's not hard to settle the, the arguments. The ultimate test is simply for validating what the biblically uh, truth is taught is if Yahshua and his disciples like Peter, James, John, and Paul actually taught and practiced what they taught. That's all you need. That's all you need. You can take that to the bank if your Savior actually practices the teachings and then himself teaches it. The next question is, what did he teach? What did he himself follow and give to us? Well, in John 4.34, Yahshua said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So he got his teachings from his father. John 8.28, Then said Yahshua unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my father taught me, I speak these things, nothing of himself. So what he taught, his father gave him to come to earth to teach. Paul and Peter teach us to follow Yahshua, 1 Corinthians 11.1. Paul said, be followers of me even as I am also of Messiah. So there's another example. 1 Peter 2.21, Peter said, for even 
Here unto were you called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. What is that example he's talking about? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In other words, he didn't sin, which means he kept to Yahweh's laws, because sin is transgression of his law. 1 John 3, 4. He was observant of Yahweh's ways by simple definition. After 2,000 years, an entirely different worship replaced the worship Yahshua and his apostles taught and established as the new covenant faith, right down to the fundamentals, like which day to keep is the Sabbath? What is his name and his son's name, if you can tell, that he tells us to honor? Well, in his book, The Apostasy of the Lost Century, S. Guston Olson writes that Something monumental happened in the first hundred years after Yahshua was resurrected. Something changed. Something got in there and perverted the truth. The new covenant was confirmed by Yahshua's death, according to Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to Elohim, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living Elohim? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, this passage is golden, brethren. The whole chapter is about the two covenants, both covenants, one with Israel and now with Israel, and those who are willing to work and to walk with Israel were put into effect through the death and blood of uh, death and the uh, blood sacrifice of an animal sacrifice. Of course, Yahshua did that to confirm the new covenant. And it remedied the fault of the people in the first covenant who proved disobedient. There was nothing wrong with the covenant, it was wrong with the people. They couldn't they couldn't handle it. They couldn't keep to it. And there's a promise of eternal life along with the second covenant. As Yahshua was dying, he cried out in John 19.30, it is finished. What was finished? What did he mean by it is finished right before he died? Well, his mission, of course, was to teach Yahweh's word to the people, teach Yahweh's word to the world. It was finalized at his death. Nothing could be added or changed after that, after his teachings were finalized. You can't, I mean, he didn't. He didn't authorize anything more or less afterwards. He said, it is finished. Now, the church's justification for changing the Sabbath to Sunday worship is that Yahshua resurrected on Sunday morning, which he didn't. He was gone by sunset Saturday night for three days and three nights. It only works that way. And so, who decided that a day of worship is predicated on a resurrection day anyway. Again, Yahshua said it is finished. You can't add that on to what he taught. Sunday worship was not in the new covenant of salvation, and you can't add anything that he didn't authorize. Today we're going to get to the very core of what these converted Hebrews called the saints practiced and taught at the time of Yahshua and how the truth they followed actually, eventually, became uh, perverted and morphed into today's churchianity. If we can nail down exactly how the church made the moves, how it left the, uh, made left turns, really, then the true-hearted and sincere seeker of truth should have all he needs to know what's right. You don't have to go arguing or uh, infighting of, you know, in churchianity because you got the truth right there. Early on in my conversion to the truth, I was blown away when I picked up Alexander Hislop's The Two Babylons. And uh, it opened my eyes to the origin of many traditional teachings of the church, observances and beliefs like, well, Xmas, Ishtar, heaven, hell, immortal soul, the development of the Trinity, the only Bible the early New Testament believers had to teach from was 
and Philo was the Old Testament. That's clear. The New Testament had not been written by that time. No other weekly observance but the seventh-day Sabbath existed in either Old or New Testament. Starting with a key New Testament example of Sabbath-keeping, we turn to Luke 4, verse 16. This is uh, an account where uh, Yahshua came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Why did he go to the synagogue on the Sabbath? Because that's where he always went on the Sabbath. If he wasn't out, you know, walking around the lake and teaching up on the hill or something, he went to the synagogue and taught. Synagogue, by the way, is a Greek word. It's uh, uh, the temple, I guess, would be closer rendering. But anyway, um, here Yahshua is reading a few of the 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about himself. About himself. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, because there was no New Testament. It was, you know, the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered about the incredible odds it would take for one person to fulfill 300 prophecies that hadn't happened yet in every exacting detail? If it wasn't Yahshua, who else could it be? Problems like, or prophecies like, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, considered impossible in itself, you know, rejected by his own people, Psalm 69.8, would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11.12, would be given vinegar to drink, boy, talk about getting down to the nitty gritty, Psalm 69.21, impaled with criminals, Isaiah 53.12, just a few a few of the 300. Another, his wrists and ankles would be pierced and they would part his garments. How could you prophet, prophesy that? And these are just for starters. Just read Isaiah 53 and all the prophetic specifics about Yahshua. A man named Dr. Charles Ryrie points out that by the law of chance it would require... 200 billion earths, each populated with 4 billion people, to come up with one person who could fill, fulfill 100 prophecies with total accuracy and no errors in the proper sequence. But in Yahshua's coming alone, there were not 100, but 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. For those who still think Yahshua's fulfillment could just be happenstance, that's insane, but let's just say they think, well, it just, it just happened to work that way. Let's illustrate the impossible odds another way. Cover the western United States with a layer of quarters a foot deep. Mark the back of one of them with an X. Okay? I guess it's the back. It's hard to tell anymore. Um, Blindfold a man and parachute him into any western state you want to and have him find that quarter marked with an X on the first try. That's how the odds tell you it would be virtually impossible to fulfill those odds except by Yahshua the Messiah when he came to earth. In the ensuing 2,000 years since our Savior and his apostles walked the earth, Monumental changes were made to their original teachings and worship. Traditions began to establish people's beliefs and practices based on no other reason but a deliberate desire to find a different path away from Judaism, which was the most driving factor in a lot of this. That led to compromises that created a totally different worship, and it hardened into what we have today. Something that rarely matches with scripture and people just go right along believing it going every week to worship in an environment that doesn't match scripture in his book history of the church through the ages robert brumbach which i think is one of the best books around if you could get hold of that it, it explains 
a lot of things, like infant baptism. Where'd that come from? You know. So anyway, he says uh, uh, he reveals where modern church teachings originated, and it wasn't from the scriptures. He observes how hundreds of unscriptural teachings arose through church councils. Constantine, there was arguing going on constantly, even Sabbath Sunday arguing. We have 500 years later, you find the church is still some keeping Sabbath, some keeping Sunday. It wasn't a slam dunk. They were arguing that over and over, and people knew that the Sabbath could not be Sunday, and others wanted to keep on with, you know, what the church told them. So they worship on Sunday. But anyway, he says uh, new doctrines were being advocated by those who were seeking for prominence. And I think that's probably where, uh, where a lot of these... Uh, Apocryphal writings, there's a lot of them in the New Testament. There's a lot of apocrypha in the New Testament. That through a vote, a doctrine foreign to Yahweh's word would be bound upon the church. So Constantine says, I can't figure it out. I don't know. He was, by the way, I don't think he was ever converted anyway, but they say he did on his deathbed. But he was a pagan. He was a heathen. So he, he, to keep his, you know, his empire together, he says, okay, uh, I'm going to call a bunch of bishops together. And we're going to vote this thing. What do you think about this? You know, so they hammered it out and they hashed it out, and even they couldn't agree on many things. And so, had there been no councils, no conferences, and if people had been content to take Yahweh's word at face value, there would be no apostasy. But this is where it started. He says about sprinkling for immersion. It is possible to find the time when the Church of Rome changed from immersion to sprinkling for baptism. He writes that the Catholic church buildings built prior to the 13th century still had large pools used for baptistry. Now, you don't need large pools if you're just going to sprinkle or pour, right? You just need a basin, like they did to, uh, to me when I was in the, back in the church when I was a kid. You don't need a big pool unless you're going to immerse somebody in it. Priestly celibacy, celibacy, is contrary to the teachings of Yahshua and the, the disciples, he writes. Peter was a married man. Paul was too. You never hear anything about his wife, but she probably had died by that point. I don't know. But uh, he was part of the Sanhedrin, and of course that means you had to be married. But they established celibacy as the priesthood, and in the priesthood, and that led to all sorts of problems, as we know, from that point on, because they didn't listen to Scripture. First Timothy 3, Titus 1. This historian attributes the Trinity to the teaching of Mar uh, the Monarchians, one of the New Testament sects that came along. They taught that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were the same person, and uh, on it goes. You know, each of us is born into a ready-made world where, uh, for most People, their family's religion is what they are. They just, you know, hand it down to them. Their family's religion is what uh, they believe, and that's what they attest to, most people. Unless their eyes are opened and the religion was wrong, they start questioning, start looking around. And a person's faith became a part of who they are, and for that reason alone, they didn't want to go back on that. Because that's me, you know, I'm, I'm of that denomination, that's me. So they don't want to change that unless they realize there's something wrong with the, that teaching, those teachings in that denomination. Well, Yahweh's word demands otherwise. The Apostle Paul said to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good, that which is right. Prove it. Don't just take your word for it. Don't take anyone's word for it. He did not say, prove all things unless you choose to rely on tradition or your ancestors or your minister. To hinge your eternal salvation on teachings that you have not proved is playing Russian roulette with your salvation. The most important issue in life, eternal salvation, family, ancestry, minister, somebody else. Well, my minister is a good man. He would never mislead me, many will say. Well, he might be a good man, but what if he's misled? I mean, seminaries everywhere are cranking out misleaders by the thousands. 
Certain truths are so obvious they don't need explaining, like Sabbath worship with its tons of evidence in the scriptures. Tons. And examples from Genesis through Revelation. Even it starts out in chapter 1 where Yahweh is creating the heavens and the earth. And yet with no biblical support whatsoever, the church switched worship to the first day of the week and virtually every denomination swallowed the bait and switch without beating an eyelash, batting an eyelash, whatever. Sunday-keeping churches have no interest in honoring Yahweh's seventh day of rest as he commanded when he made the seventh day a memorial of creation even. How much more fundamental can that make it? A memorial of creation itself because we exist the Sabbath. Says it. Because it's the day he rested. They didn't have no interest in it though. Even though the one they adhere to, I'd say Paul and Joshua, didn't keep any other day. There's only eight places in the New Testament where first day of the week is found, and it's, it doesn't pin it to any worship. They try to make it. They try to twist it, saying he took a collection. That's supposed to be a collection played at church. No, he took a collection because there was a famine going on in Jerusalem. He's trying to get foodstuffs to these people. So when I come by on the first of the week, didn't say first day, that was added. In fact, the day was added in all eight of those instances. When I come by on the first day of the week, or the first of the week, I want to have this ready, so I have to sit and wait around. You know, I go, oh, wait a minute, I got some beans over here, and I got some salad over here, and just hang on, you know. And he says, I want to come, I want to go, and I want to get it, and I want to get it out there. That's what he's talking about. That wasn't a worship day, because you just read the verses before, it explains it. There was a famine. There was a, you know, a need for these brethren to get food. Well, it boils down to the fact that most care more about traditions than uh, the Bible. Another clear self-evident fact universally missed is that names identify. Your name identifies you. It's pretty important to you. You don't want anybody using a different name, of course. Names identify. Yahweh commanded his personal name be used when he said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. Those seven words say it all clearly and succinctly. You don't need any more proof than that. I am Yahweh, that is my name. Clear and direct. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Why? Because if you use a different name, you're not worshiping me. You're worshiping graven images. Why would anyone read his own clear statement and argue that generic titles are preferable? Again, they're caught up in tradition. Traditionally, that's how people refer to Almighty Yahweh. G-O-D is just a classification. It's just a category. That's all it is. A category of uh, mighty ones. And is not a name. No true worshiper ever called him G-O-D in the scriptures. It wasn't there. With a common title that applies to false deities? Are you kidding me? Did any of the millions through the ages read verse 8 of Isaiah 42 ever say to themselves, well, how can I am the L-O-R-D be a name? Did they ever ask themselves that? We've corrected it in RSB, of course, given it its proper name. Did Well, why be name-specific when everyone knows who you mean? Anyway, they'll reason. Because he commands it. That's good enough for me. He's the one that's going to judge me. I better get in line with his word. You know, come up with these arguments that aren't in Scripture at all. He has many names. He knows who I mean. All names are the same. I mean, it's just it's craziness. But they'll come up with those that essentially hold no water at all. Right worship results from obeying the one you worship by honoring his wishes. The entire Bible harmonizes from Genesis through Revelation. Because it's all inspired by Yahweh and all teachings have to conform to the same authority. Or else they're flawed. 
if an understanding looks like it fits in one place but conflicts with a passage somewhere else, you got to dig into it and find out why. Maybe it's the way you're reading it. Maybe it's the translation. Maybe you got to find out why there seems to be a contradiction. Even 2,000 years ago when Paul was writing his letters, there were major problems with spurious teachings in his day that had no basis in Scripture, but it was happening even back then. He spent a lot of time exposing heresy. You can read about the apostles when they established you know, the, the assemblies in the New, New, New Testament. If any of the very men who sat at the feet of Yahshua the Messiah during his earthly ministry could witness what they see today as worship, biblical worship, uh, they'd be blown away. So wait a minute, that's not what we taught, that's not what we practiced. Um, all these outright falsities, eager, eagerly accepted like some bobblehead doll bouncing on the back of a station wagon window. Oh yeah, I'll do it, yeah, whatever you say. And they won't even look at the and examine. They don't even want to. No, don't, don't tell me anything. I, I got the truth, don't worry. In today's worship environment, people are given heavy infusions of Romans 5.20. Grace, grace, and none of Romans 6.1. Don't continue in sin to try to make grace abound. They don't put the two together. This was warned of in Jude 1.4 when heretics were using grace to justify their disobedience. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, wicked men, turning the grace of our Elohim into lasciviousness and denying the only sovereign Yahweh and our master Yahshua Messiah. It was happening right then. When the apostles were preaching, you had these guys preaching against. Paul instructed the young Timothy on the onset of his ministry in first, uh, 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word, the word be instant in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, re- exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Paul was speaking of the Old Testament, but it has gone even further when not even the essentials of the New Testament are preached today. So why is most of today's worship so foreign to the worship and teachings that we read in the New Testament? How did so much get changed? What exactly happened? Well, a great deal of doctrinal transformation was going on, as we mentioned in the New Testament. The times were awash in heresy. This was even foretold by Yahshua in Matthew 26, 31. Then saith Yahshua unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. In other words, when he's gone, when the leader's gone, shoo, they're all scattered. Heresy exploded on the scene once Yasha was gone. Little would-be messiahs wanted their day in the sun. So they even started writing their own books, apocryphal books of the New Testament. And so what became known as Christianity was a mishmash of foreign beliefs, divergent teachings, conflicting practices. It was not this neat little package that presented to you today that carried the faith and practice that Yahshua and the apostles engendered. It was instead an absolute mess. And sadly, little has changed. There were so many heresies and heretics going around There was so much foreign worship influence. There was such a divergence of beliefs that to find the truth took a lot of sifting and a lot of searching. You had to search out the truth. And so the Roman church came along and coagulated this mess into one belief system. And they call it Catholic, which means universal. Now we have all the faith in one group. Couldn't do it alone. It needed the power of the civil government, which was supplied by, as I mentioned, Constantine. He forced it. He forced it on the world by edict, by king's edict. That's how it grew so fast. People were forced to do it. Kind of reminds me of today, doesn't it? Some of the things they want you to do. And these doctrines got their alleged spiritual authority from the apostle Paul, supposedly through Yahshua himself. Not well, Paul, but, but also Peter. Don't not forget Peter. 
Yahshua said to Peter, and I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my assembly, and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. So Peter became the first pope, the church said. But wait, Yahshua didn't say upon you, Peter, I will build my assembly. He said upon this rock, I will build my assembly. Besides, when did Peter become a Roman Catholic? How can Peter be the head of the assembly when Yahshua already was? They missed the play on words. Peter, Greek for rock, Petros, small rock, a stone. And rock, as upon this rock I'll build my assembly, is, is uh, uh, Petra. Peter is Petros. This one's Petra, which means a big ledge, a big rock ledge like you see you know, along some of Missouri rivers. Upon that ledge, not upon Peter, but upon that ledge. It's a play on words. Solid rock of confession. So, two different rocks, two different meanings. But they think that Peter then had the authority. He became the first pope. And, of course, we know that Yahshua gave the authority to all the other uh, apostles as well. But anyway, that's another, another message. Over the next two centuries, many churches throughout the empire, many churches recognized the obvious benefits of Sunday worship. So they followed Rome. They followed whatever edict that was sent out. Sunday became the holy day of the week. Almost all of these, however, with the exception of Roman Alexandria and their satellites, continued to observe the seventh-day Sabbath. The rest of them said, no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't wash. That doesn't, that doesn't fly, you know. That's the first day of the week, and you have no substantiating evidence for it. There's nothing in the scriptures to say you worship on the first day of the week, and no evidence that anyone ever did. The result being that two worship days were honored side by side in, in many uh, countries and in, many, in several centuries, even as late as the fifth. Obviously, therefore, the uh, early church did not regard Sunday worship as a substitute for the Sabbath. That came later. And now they'll, do, they'll even say, you ask a, you know, ask a minute, Sunday-keeping minister, well, which day is the Sabbath? He'll say, well, it's Saturday. But we honor the worship day. What day is that? The first day of the week. We honor the worship day. See how they made that distinction? We today are left to take the proper pieces and put them back together to recreate the truth. That's one of the foundations on which this, this ministry is based. We want to return, restore original worship as much as we can, as much as we know. In Revelation chapters 2 to 3, Paul, or John, assesses seven assemblies in his prophetic message given by Yahshua. These seven assemblies were real assemblies and obviously given as lessons for us not to do or to do whatever uh, their distinction was. We see what was good about them, but we also see what was seriously wrong with most of them. We certainly don't want to go the same road that the five troubled ones did. Two of these don't have any problems, Smyrna and, of course, Philadelphia. They don't, we don't find that they have any issues that need to be corrected. Ephesus, first one, Revelation 2, 1 to 7. It's from Revelation 2. The assembly forsaking its first love. We'll get into that in a minute. Smyrna, the assembly suffering persecution. And that's all we find of that one. Pergamum, the assembly needing repentance. Thyatira, the assembly with a false prophetess. Sardis, the sleeping assembly. Philadelphia, the enduring obedient assembly. Laodicea, the lukewarm assembly. First listed as Ephesus, the assembly that lost its first love. There was also Pergamon, Pergamon which uh, had not denied the faith, by the way, but was tolerating doctrinal error that would soon tear it apart. There was Thyatira, where there was still more good things going on, but full-blown compromise with evil woman Jezebel had taken its toll, and the majority seemed to have been involved. Then there was Sardis, a corner, a comatose assembly, where nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. 
had only a few dedicated truth seekers still there. I often wondered even today why some hold tightly to a dead assembly that's not doing anything. Why? Why? What are you accomplishing? What are you accomplishing when the group you're with is not doing anything but just meeting? Instead of a dynamic, growing, doing things assembly that Yasha will praise one day as having done well, I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that, be, be in that, and get something accomplished that, that's for the glory of Yahweh? Well, Philadelphia was the one that got it right. They have an open door for Yahweh's blessings. The city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. The most blistering rebuke is leveled at the Laodicean assembly. In each of these assemblies that is listed here, some redeeming value is found. There are a few that are still there, still, you know, doing it right, but nothing redeeming is said about Laodicea. They are tares without wheat. They are lukewarm fence-sitters, which are the most difficult to deal with. Therefore, Yahshua said, I will spew you out of my mouth, unless you repent and change. When you are lukewarm, you just play both sides. Play both sides, compromise here and there, everywhere. You concede to error at opportune times, but then you present yourself as truth seekers at other times. These dabblers in the faith believe they have it all, and compromise is their birthmark. This is the state of much religion, I think, today. Many assemblies and messianic groups also fit this mold. Lukewarm is subtle. It flies under the radar, and it's dangerous because of its stealth. On the surface, without your mind engaged, it comes off as, okay, yeah, they're okay, they're good people, yeah, okay, that's fine. But what are they doing? What are they accomplishing? Could it be that Laodicea is mentioned last because lukewarm is often the sum of all the other defects in all the other assemblies? They just finally start coasting along, not really caring. They've had enough. They've, they've been, uh, you know, war-wounded. You know, all they are is, uh, all, all that's left of them is uh, scar tissue. So they, you know, I don't care. Do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. I'm happy. Lukewarm is often what happens when other things become a priority and you begin to go through the motions, but... Uh, really are accomplishing very little. We today are seeing the lack of sound Bible teaching and churchianity, of course, and influencing others against the stand. Their beliefs are threatened with compromise. We can't ever allow that, compromise. We know what's right, even if we're the last one standing, you know. As for me and my family, Joshua said, Stand or not, right now, rest assured that we will stand before Yahweh. We will stand before our judge in the judgment seat and be held accountable for what we do here. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that. Unless things start to change radically and more have the backbone to preach the word and not the fluffy stuff, then truth is going to fade out. When, the, when uh, we read that uh, the Savior returns, will he find the faith on earth? The question we need to seriously ask ourselves. Yahshua saw it coming. While the Apostle Paul was building a mother assembly at Ephesus, his fellow servant Epaphras was evangelizing the Lycus Valley, including Laodicea, 100 miles to the east. Ephesus was the home of the worship of Diana of Ephesians. This is an interesting, interesting mighty one. Diana was the daughter of Jupiter. Of course, this is all, you know, uh, fake. But anyway, uh, and was the mother goddess of the earth. Her equivalent, I believe, is Mary of the Roman church, which venerates her as the mother of G.O.D. The ancient Romans had vestal virgins who were ancient pagan priestesses of Vesta, the fire deity. Romans believed that so long as Vesta's sacred flame was kept burning, then the city and its civilization would endure. Like the flame of Zeus, it was the duty of these virgins, these priestesses, to tend to this fire daily. The burning of candles in church services uh, echoes this ancient practice of burning 
sacred fire. As we read in Brumbach's History of the Church Through the Ages, <clears throat> to make the transition from pagan worship to Christian worship was e easy. The church and apostasy instituted on the same day a, a feast to the Virgin Mary and burned tapers, slender candles, in her honor. The equivalent of the Vestal Virgins in the uh, order is the order of nuns. Vestal Virgins had to commit to maintaining their virginity for the duration, which was about 30 years. They had no family and were totally on their own. Without going into detail, the worship of Diana involved the most evil, diabolical of veneration. According to Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher who knew, he saw it, he said what they did in her worship, even an animal would not do. For even dogs do not mutilate each other. The people were there were only fit to be drowned, he said. More and more are deteriorating culture. It's hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to believe what they accept anymore, you know? It's hard to believe. Where is the moral standard, the decency we all grew up with? Like, well, you, you hear cussing on TV all the time now. Or worse yet, profanity in children's cartoons. And even worse. And sodomite dances in school buildings. Yeah, we saw that last week. I don't remember where it was. I don't even want to talk about it. But they were going, they, they, oh, it was awful. They had it on the news, in their gymnasiums, and they were putting up with it. The other assembly to look at is Ephesus. This city was a major center of paganism, the cultural center of the Roman province of Asia. In his final commendation of Ephesus, Paul writes, but this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. After having chided them in verses 4 and 5, he now comes back to commend them again. They are not entirely washed up. He gives them another commendation. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who's that? He said, which Joshua also hates. Roman church historian Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history writes that Nicholas, a founder of this Nicolaitan movement, was a moral man. Though sincere and devout, he, however, came to believe that the only way to grow spiritually was to consider the physical world unimportant. In this way, he could focus entirely on spiritual things. So he was a Gnostic. That's what they believed. Anything physical was bad. His fundamental doctrine appears to have been the flesh must be treated with contempt. He was an ascetic and his doctrine said that because the flesh is unimportant, even contemptible, the flesh is of no consequence. You see where this is leading? Because it didn't matter what you did physically, his philosophy led to open licentiousness and many, many other sins. Sins committed brazenly with impunity. What does that tell us about those who say, well, works are unnecessary? Do you think there's an echo of Nicholas here? Works are not needed. Uh, we don't have to do all these things. We don't have to keep the commandments because we're up here in the spiritual level. That's where Nicol Nicolaitans were. The bad doesn't, I mean, the, the uh, physical doesn't matter. You see where that can lead? No matter what I do, I'm okay. You know, I'm saved. What they didn't consider is what's done in the physical impacts the spiritual. The Bible tells us that over and over and over. At some point, Nicolaitanism evolved from ascetic Persian and Hellenistic philosophy to a total licentious one. You see, it didn't matter. You can do what you want. It doesn't impact your salvation. And Yahshua hated it. What are the arguments today against obedience to the Ten Commandments and other biblical law? Well, salvation is not works, but it's all faith and grace, said Luther and other reformers. So with this mindset, what do the Sabbath feasts and Ten Commandments matter? You don't have to do them if the physical adherence to them doesn't affect your salvation. It's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans all over again, brethren, and it's 
been perpetuated for 2,000 years. Salvation for these folks rests in the ethereal, the amorphous mind and soul, untouched and unaffected by the physical, the earthly actions and works. Well, they had a problem at Ephesus. It's one of the better assemblies listed, so what happened? Well, the indictment in Revelation 2 was that the Ephesus assembly had lost their first love. But what was that? That's been argued endlessly of what it was their first love. They had fallen from something that isn't recorded. We don't have, or do we? They seem to have their ducks in a row. They even hate evil things and persevere in their labor for Yahweh and are not given up, but something is still wrong. Their passion and fervor that they had at the beginning, their first love, had been lost. Their first love is not about any one thing, but about how they were at first. It's the only thing that the only things that makes any sense. Let's bring this down to us. Your first love was literally the, the love of the truth that you had at the beginning. You learned something. You, you want to go out and tell everybody, look, look, I, I learned this. I know the feast days and, and the Sabbath. It's, it's right here. I can prove it. And fell on deaf ears. People didn't care. They didn't care. Well, there would be a few that cared. But most of the time, you just got rebuffed. Yeah. So it kind of lost its luster after a while, perhaps. Shouldn't, but for some it may. And it discouraged these people. Here was an entire assembly that still held to the fundamentals, but their passion was lost. It was now just mechanical motions in faith. Ephesus lost the first love is the first step toward total apathy and indifference, as in the Laodicean assembly. And I believe that's why Laodicea is mentioned last, because it's the summation of all the problems that the others had, and it led to apathy. Didn't care. Just a passionless, tepid attitude that makes Yahshua ill for which he will spew anyone out of his mouth as he warned the Laodiceans. When you give up, when you have nothing more to do with caring, you're placed on the critical list in Yahshua's eyes and in danger of contracting all the endemic problems suffered by the five assemblies. We see Yahweh angry with the problem assemblies, Revelation 2, and he warns of bad things to come unless they change, unless you change. But the last one, Laodicean, is different. He says he will spew them out of his mouth. They make him ill by their unreceptive, lifeless, lukewarm attitudes. I know your works, but you are neither cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. What an indictment. See, playing both sides doesn't work. Becoming lackadaisical doesn't, doesn't play. It, uh, it doesn't resonate with Yahweh. If you're lukewarm, everything is blurred. The dividing walls aren't there, and so it's easy to blend from one side to the other. It's okay. We put up with it. Pacify unbelieving family by compromising the Sabbath occasionally, but still honor it mostly. That's Laodiceanism. Thinking Yahweh will accept that, that's lukewarm. You either do or you don't. We had a man early on who was... Hospital nurse. They required him, as I guess most of them do, work on every other Sabbath, every other Saturday. He thought he could do that and gave me some creative excuses why he's justified in doing that, such as doing good on the Sabbath. I'm doing good on the Sabbath. That's nothing wrong with that. Something that the Talmud okayed. And I said, Talmud? <laughs> uh, we, don't, we don't go by the Talmud. I'm sorry. But... Uh, I told him you either keep the Sabbath or you don't. Simple as that. Yahweh doesn't accept partial effort. We don't bend his laws to conform to our lifestyle or our wishes. That's lukewarm. Brethren, works always reveal what a person is, always. What you do shows what's in your heart. That's simple as that. Yahshua said in Matthew 7.20, Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Romans 2.6 flies in the face of Nicolaitan doctrine. 
and modern-day church doctrine as well. Who will render to every man according to his deeds to them who by patient continuance in well-doing, you know, it's not just following the law, it's doing well, applying what you know to the culture. Yahshua said pure religion is attending to the fatherless and the widow. You help, you do things. That's, that's kind of like what it leads to when you honor Yahweh. It leads to helping and teaching and doing what you can for those who are in need. He says, but uh, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath is their future. Paul makes it clear, as anywhere in the Bible, that we will be judged by our acts. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad. And as we learned in Yahshua's parable, Lazarus and the rich man, once, once your life is over, there's no redo. It's over. The record of your life is right there for Yahshua to see. Well, at the end of the address of each of the seven assemblies, Yahweh says in a repeat refrain to listen to what the Spirit is saying to each one. Listen and learn. I'm telling you your problems. Here are the solutions. Hear me now. To Laodicea, he promises that the elect who overcome will sit with Yahshua in his throne. They can change. Anybody can change. You know, that reminds me of the, uh, we have a letter sent out for the vaccines and I heard an argument, uh, uh, somebody leveled on the news, said, well, did you ever, you, you who don't want to take the vaccine, did you ever take a vaccine in your life? Did you ever take a flu shot or anything? And in the letter we explained, anybody can change. The, the law is not predicated upon what you did in the past, it's what you are now. And all you have to do is profess a faith, and they're supposed to honor it. According to the EEOC, they're supposed to honor it. Well, as we just learned, they don't always honor it. A religious exemption is usually good, but not always in the minds of some of these businesses. Anyway, I'll leave you with a thought here. The tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, and so long as they ate of it, they had continual life. Yahshua said he is the way, the truth, the life. Yahshua gave up his... his uh, his life on a tree so that we can have life through freedom from sin's penalty. His blood was his life shed at the Passover. When we take up his body and blood at Passover, we take up of him who has life to give in return. You know, it's fascinating parallels there that uh, strengthen the importance of observing things like the Passover and other feasts of the word. There's so much in there, they're so filled with depth of teaching in Yahweh's word. Other feasts of the word teach many things. They're not just activities to keep us busy. They have real truths for those who still have their first love. And I pray we all do and we never lose it. Hallelujah. Yahweh bless you.